Welcome. Jonathan, you were going to say that. I was. Go ahead. <laughs> Welcome to Trinity Radio. I'm Jonathan Pritchett, and along with me is... Braxton Hunter. And today we have a very special guest, our dear friend, Dr. Layton Flowers, the Director of Evangelism and Apologetics at Texas Baptists, the uh, the real Texas Baptist Convention, the older Texas Baptist Convention, the one that dwarfs the other would-be Texas Baptist. Is that right? Um, yes. He can't answer questions like that know, because, because he serves was, both in some capacity. No, it's it's definitely true. We're we're the first and the biggest, so we can yeah. so we can we can say that. Yeah, we can speak truth, right? That's also truth. the right, right. the uh, professor of theology at Trinity College of the Bible Theological Seminary. Which, if you want to, you can sign up. Go to trinitysem.edu and fill out an eval form and consider becoming a student, or even just to audit classes taught by Doctor Flowers or one of us. Um, and then he's also the uh, lead host of Soteriology 101 on YouTube. I'm sure maybe four or five of you have heard of it. People are asking where my hairline went. It's hanging in there like a champ. It's yeah. better than Braxton's. That's how my hairline's doing. Yep. So, Leighton, welcome to the show. Thanks for coming back. Hey, it's my pleasure. It's good to see my friends on video, if nothing else. If I can't hang out with you in person, at least I can hang out with you via you know, Skype and Zoom and broadcasts like this. So well, there's no me. one we'd rather hang out with. But we will be hanging out with him in person in September That's at right. the Unapologetics Conference in, Sol what, what's the name? Salado. 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 Salado, Texas. Featuring us, uh, everyone you see here. I mean, Leighton will probably be floating around somewhere. Uh, Eric Hernandez. Yay. Michael Jones of Inspiring Philosophy. Adam Coleman. <laughs> oh, Adam Coleman. Who else? True ID Apologetics. Sometimes I wear a shirt on, on the program. Tim Stratton. Another fellow professor. This is like the Trinity Conference. Yeah. For the most part. Yeah. So thanks for helping us. Uh, I know that Eric was behind oh, are you offering? That, but... Are you offering to sponsor it? Because that's what I heard. Uh, we, I heard Trinity wants yeah, to sponsor. Yeah, we can sponsor it for $120,000. <laughs> Over the oh, next two years. Y'all giving it to us or are we giving it years. to y'all? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. we'll yeah. It's plan. like the pastor said, I can pay you $150,000 a year to come be my children's pastor, but it's going to be over three years. You'll get that $150,000. <laughs> but uh, okay. So, Jonathan, I said that like I knew where we were going with this, but there's three groups of men. Yes. Now, first of all, I just want to say to everyone uh, tomorrow, I will be releasing probably. Uh, I always do that. Okay. Next Monday, <laughs> and maybe it'll be tomorrow. By next Monday, there will definitely there be a There will video. be a, uh episode where I had another interview with or discussion with uh, James Coons from Modern Day Debate, and he listed out what he considered to be the uh, top five things he's noticed about Christians and atheists when they debate after having moderated over 900 debates. Wow. And so uh, that's already been recorded. There are some great nuggets in there. You'll want to be there for that. Sometimes I give it away early, folks, if you're on patreon.com slash Trinity Radio. So go check it out. Give us a little something. Leighton, you used to say, if you're the kind of person that might buy us a cup of coffee if you saw us once a month, hey, uh, five bucks would help out, you know? Yeah, that's right. Um, so enough with that. And Jonathan, take it away. Yeah, so uh, three articles uh, came across my attention uh, in the past two weeks. Um, kind of, kind of interrelated, but but 
three different topics that I, I think somewhat interesting to me. And so I think that it would be interesting to have the director of evangelism and apologetics and a at least a nationwide or at least the southeastern wide uh, renowned evangelist Braxton Hunter uh, to weigh in on to, to give us some uh, help and, and clarity on these issues, because uh, there's the first two deal with uh Christianity on the decline, and the second one, uh, at least in the United States, and then the the third one deals with um, Christianity kind of on the upswing in uh, Australia, which uh, you've been to and never saw a kangaroo and don't believe that they exist. But I, I thought all three were interesting. It's pretty obvious why the third one was interesting to me. We'll get to it. But in this first article, um, there was a discussion about Young people leaving the church, it's very pertinent to a lot of people talking about, you know, in the apologetic space, how do we keep young people from um, leaving the church? And it bypassed a lot of the discussions that you have in apologetic circles about, oh, we're not teaching them enough apologetics to counter their biology teacher in high school or their philosophy professor at college. It boiled down to one thing. So if you want to pull up, uh, number one, we'll start reading. And then oh, we're into it, huh? Yeah. We're right into it. Yeah. Pull up number one. Uh, there was a new study on faith and relationships suggests that absent fathers and collapsed marriages might be the might be two of the best explanations for why Christianity is declining in the United States. The nationwide study on faith and relationships uh, research recently released by the church consulting organization um, Communo reports that family decline appears to fuel faith decline. The new study drew data from a nationwide survey of 19,000, which is a decent sample, uh, Sunday church attendees from 112 evangelical, Protestant, and Catholic congregations in 13 states. The research comes as marriage rates have dropped 31% since 2000 and 61% since 1970, while less than half of all adults under 30 today grew up in a home with married parents. According to the study, individuals who regularly attend church are more likely to have fathers present in their lives. So this goes beyond the usual stuff that we talk about in apologetics, like I said, about, oh, we're not equipping them with enough apologetic information and all of this stuff. But it, it's putting this back a little bit further that about, about the missing fathers and the breakdown of the family. So this is a pastoral issue and an evangelism issue uh, primarily, I think. A discipleship issue. Yeah. Um, so how do we solve that problem, Jonathan? How do we get men to get more serious and to be fathers to these kids? Well, what, what I'm curious about, because the study didn't really go into that, what are the social factors that has led to the decline of the family structure and the family unit in the United States? Mm -hmm. Because speaking culturally, we often hear... Um, well, you know, in certain communities like the African-American community, for example, you know, there's so many children born out of wedlock or whatever. But it ends up the same because in a lot of other families, whether it's divorce or at the point of birth, there's no solid family structure there, right? Mm -hmm. So it's not one community, it's all communities. You know, there's just an overall decline. Mm -hmm. And so whether men are in the house not uh, you know they go to church if men are not in the house doesn't matter if it's 
from the point of birth or at any point in, in the well, life. Well, the things that led to this in part are going to be yeah. uh, that, well, ever since the middle of the 20th century, which had its own problems that don't have anything to do or don't directly have to do with, uh, it had its own problems in other domains. But in, but in this domain, uh, say, you know, the early part of the 20th century, the way that you became sexually active, the way that you, uh, you, I mean, you didn't have so many of the, you didn't have the pill, you didn't have some of these things. And so as a result, you got married. I mean, there were people that went and saw prostitutes. There were adult, there was adultery and all those sorts of things. But there's more of an understanding of, hey, you could, you could get somebody pregnant. Uh, the safest way to do this is marry, fall in love and all that. The pill changed a lot of things with that regard. The sexual um, revolution. The sexual course. revolution. And so as a result, now today, people are, well, I may have a baby, don't even need to involve a man or something like that. Hmm. And not to put this all on women, because it's certainly not. But just to say that these sorts of changes have led to less, uh, to uh, the, the, the decay of traditional family values, whether you think that decay is good or bad, um, is partly to blame on all of this sort of claimed freedom that we saw throughout the last half of the 20th century. You know, and I, I hear a lot of talk when it comes to this is, uh, and, and as much as in conservative spaces, Ronald Reagan is hailed as some sort of greatest president of all time, you know, or at least our lifetimes or whatever. But it was during the Reagan administration that no fault divorce became more prevalent. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Right? Eric Fisher just pointed that out. Yeah. And Leighton, feel free to jump in at any point. Yeah. Sometimes I don't know where to jump in either because I don't know exactly where Jonathan's going <laughs> in these Fridays. Yeah. Well, I, I, well, but it's just interesting to me because all, all three of us are examples of, of uh, men who have had stable marriages. You know, I, I think we've all been married. For, we're still married. Yeah, we can say that. We've all been married for uh, over 20 years, I believe. Leighton, you've, how long have you been married? I just, just had 25, yeah. Just came 25 past 25. Silver yeah. one. Yeah, the silver one. Mm -hmm. It'd be twenty three for me this year, and twenty. It'll be twenty one. Twenty one for you. Twenty two. No, no, twenty two. It'll yeah. be twenty two. Better get. Do you know the date? <laughs> it's okay. She doesn't watch. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I know the date. June thirtieth, two thousand one. Right. Very good. Okay, so the day Indiana Jones comes out. Go ahead. My adult son Zach in Arkansas. Um. You know, he, he's married. Him and his wife is still attending church, right? They're, um, he's like on the low bottom end of the millennial, and she's a couple years behind him, so she's a Gen Z. They're in church. Um, my 20-year-old son uh, is still in church and dragging me to uh, Eastern Orthodox services on occasion, but, I mean, we all go to one life. Um, your daughters, of course, are not fully grown yet, but... Uh, Leighton, are your adult kids still uh, active in church? Yeah, I mean, as far as I know, I guess they could be uh, <laughs> keeping that from me. But yeah, all three of my children who have left, you know, graduated from high school and left home are active in, uh, you know, their Christian walk. Um, and I, I, I'd have to I'd have to check up on them to find out how many of them are going to church, how many times a week and what that all looks like. I know that COVID had a huge impact on, you know, just the way people attend church, because I do know even with my parents who are very much, you know, church going type folks that because of the COVID, you know, influence and the influence of, of that, they, they now watch 
uh, their kind of their normal worship service on television in the morning. And then they have a, a personal Bible study that's local. That's kind of the way they do church. And that kind of changed after COVID. And so there's some of that that shift, uh, you know, just culture, how culture can shift things is even through that. And then it then becomes the question, the chicken, the egg, you know, which came first. Is it the breakdown of culture um, led to the absentee father or the other way around? Did the absentee father lead to the breakdown of the culture? And it seems like there's a kind of a both in both and mentality there. Obviously, it, it I, I think even a, a non-Christian person that doesn't have the values that we hold to can can recognize uh, the incentive of having a, a whole household. Um, of having both male and female influences that are positive, if nothing else, of having a loving mother and father. Uh, those kinds of things, I think, are just demonstrably more healthy. And, and uh, you know, does, that does not mean, obviously, that just because someone's raised in a single uh, parent household that they can't, you know, obviously become great Christians. And sometimes because of the trial of the tribulation or the issue they go through in their, in their home situation actually leads them to be a, a stronger kind of Christian because it's not just the nominal Christianity. They've been, they've gone through fire, so to speak. They've, they've gone through maybe a, a, a harder turmoil in their family than maybe, you know, I know Rex and I both raised by preacher daddies and uh, in very, very godly homes. But sometimes, it's the preacher kid that has the the biggest problems because they go off the rails. Um, and, and so just because someone has a good upbringing is no way a guarantee that you're going to produce, you know, someone who is, uh, you know, a, a godly Christian who's, you know, attending church on a regular basis. That seems, yeah, that's, that that's a really important thing. Person. I don't mean to break your flow late, but that's a really important thing because there are people who hear the, you know, the, the wisdom of scripture that, Hey, if you raise up a child in the way he should go, then when he is old, he'll not depart from it. And they think, well, wait a minute, I must've been a complete failure because my child, uh, did do some immoral things or walked away from the faith or what, whatever, you know, issue that it is. And, and the truth is in scripture, there are godly men who had ungodly children and there are ungodly men who had godly children and that can happen. And sometimes the general wisdom, you know, this, that's general wisdom is saying that if you raise up a child, but they have their own free will. And of course, there are examples of people going the other way. One question I would have, Leighton, since you do, you, you, you have older kids than, I guess, than we do. Um, and I would, well, my, your oldest is 18. Uh, my oldest? Your oldest is 20. My oh, you're, 20. oh, yeah. I always just think about <laughs> Noah and uh, Sarah, but yeah, yeah, you do have another child. But, but of those two that are in the home, uh, yeah. so you guys both could maybe speak to this and inform me like, What'd you do right that your kids are still Christians? Well, like you said, it's no guarantee, but I think with our anecdotal experience seems to line up with the data that at least there's a much better shot. Mm -hmm. uh, at least, I mean, it's more likely than, you know, uh, than if you did nothing, right? So, mm -hmm. I mean, it's like um, our, our anecdotal experiences seem to match this data. And my question is, though, going back to what Leighton had said about the chicken and the egg, mm -hmm. right? Um we see the decline of Christianity in the West, but the church has a responsibility because it has lost people, right? Mm -hmm. And and that has increased or accelerated, at least in-person services um, with since COVID. But did the you know? 
I remember growing up, there was a lot of emphasis. We had the focus on the family thing. We had the promise keepers thing. We had all of this stuff. True love waits. Yeah, there was like all of this stuff. Oh, you're saying specifically about men. Men, family, all of that stuff. Mm -hmm. And did the church drop the ball on that? Oh, You know, it's always, we probably could always say the church dropped the ball in some respect. I mean, we're not Jesus. And there are certainly many uh problems you know you you and i were just reacting to someone last night in or yesterday in our uh facebook group uh, who was you know i feel like there's always the the fear that on the one hand we're going to trample the church underfoot by putting things out there that are you know not representative in the way that they're being described but at the same time it's certainly true that there have been evils in the history of the church including the recent history of the church yeah and so that's that certainly needs to be mentioned yeah well, I think uh, you can also hey, point out that, that, yeah, I was just going to say, it, you can also point out the fact that there's, you know, nominal Christianity. And, and <clears throat> I think I can't remember where I heard this. Uh, it was in one of the seminars or something that I went to along the way as even as a parent and uh, as a denominational worker where I've learned some things about some of these studies uh, with regard to youth and youth ministry, because I did youth, you know, evangelism for for years prior to becoming the director of evangelism. And so a lot of the youth studies that I did kind of fall in this line and talking about statistics of, you know, uh, you know, how many kids end up abandoning the faith and why and what's the common denominator of those who end up sticking and those who end up falling away. And there's all kinds of things out there that that uh, ask these kinds of questions. And and I remember one of them making the point that sometimes actually nominal Christians do a lot more uh, nominal mean by name only. Um, like they, they occasionally go to church. They kind of just call themselves Christian, but there's not, their life really doesn't back it up all that much. When children are raised in that kind of environment, they see Christianity as, as, as just a surface level badge. And, and, they actually, in, raised in those kinds of homes, actually do more damage to Christianity because the child is raised believing that that's what Christianity looks like. Um, and and so what may look like out on the surface is, oh, well, that, have, that person has a mother and a father. They live at home. They're not divorced. Uh, they go to church semi-regularly. Um, they claim to be Christians. But behind the scenes, all these things are actually happening behind the scenes that we don't see that the child is actually witnessing, like like the father or the mother uh, not really living like what they believe or what they say, a little bit of hypocrisy behind the scenes, those kinds of things. And then that leads that child to abandon what he sees or he or she sees as quote unquote Christianity as just being this fake thing um, versus a child raised in a home where they have you know, I think maybe what they've witnessed, hopefully from us, you know, in our, our house where I, I remember sitting down with my, my sons, I have three sons and a daughter, but specifically with my sons and confessing some of my struggles as a young man and some of the things that I fell into and some of my, you know, and, and kind of weeping with them over their own sins and issues and being real with them. And, kind of bringing them into my own Christian journey and my struggles and my doubts and the reasons I got into apologetics and why I, I believe what I believe about God and these kinds of things. They, they see that I'm, you know, I, there are, there, I'm, we're all hypocrites to some degree where we do things that don't, don't always align with our faith, but we come right out and, and are honest with them about that. We're just like, you know, we, we fail, we mess up, dad messes up. And, 
uh, and, and your mom much less so messes up, but she messes up too. Um, and, but we're forgiven. And when you show them that genuine walk with the Lord, I think they're much less likely to walk away from it because they see it for what it really is that we're, we're not saints that live perfect lives, but we're forgiven sinners and we all struggle. And we, we, you know, by faith, depending upon a, a savior who loves us and provides for us, even in the midst of our, our mistakes and our struggles and, and sometimes even divorces and all kinds of issues that, that, so that you know, that families yeah, end up going through that are even in the Christian world. Yeah, that's two. Di- yeah, there, there's there's a the discipleship that happens from the family and, and the home that, that gives an expression to what authentic Christianity really is, which is, you know, not just the highs, but the lows, too, and, and being honest about it. And then there's that kind of cultural Christianity where it's it's more of a cultural yeah. identity marker, but it's not really. a. And that's interesting that because I had not heard that before what you just mentioned, that those end up doing worse damage than than because all the stereotypes is, well, my dad was a fundamentalist preacher and then I hurrah and just ran away from the faith. Uh, well, you gotta be, you gotta be smart. Like, you know, you know my dad is, was a mega church pastor. And in this respect, me and Layton kind of had similar upbringings because his dad was, you know, see you at the pole and all these kind of things, you know, very, very well known. And, um, what was I going to say about that? I don't know. Uh, it's gone. Go yeah. On. Yeah. Well, just, yeah. Was, you were talking about, yeah, you were talking about how when you're raised in the home, I think of a, a oh, you got to be smart. Yeah, thanks, Layton. Yeah. Because like my dad, for example, did not name me a biblical name. Maybe this is true of Layton too. That the reason was because he, he he didn't want me to feel like you know when you saw those pastors and their kids are like Mary and John and and all, all biblical names and they there was this emphasis that often gets put on pastors' kids that you've got to be like the prototype of the perfect young person because you're representing your father and your father is supposed to be a model to the rest of the church. And of course those things can all be true. I should be a good, obedient young kid, but the truth is uh, there can be a level of um, emphasis and spotlight put on a, some pastor's kids that if their parents aren't careful, like, like I think my parents did a smart thing. Maybe they didn't have to, but my brother's name is Chad. My name is Braxton. That was a simple thing. You never read Ninth Ezra where Leighton the Dragon Slayer? If there's a Leighton the Dragon Slayer <laughs> in the Bible, that'd be awesome. But but the thing is, I think the little things like that can be helpful. My parents always try to give me the impression that I was I was that I should be a good Christian kid, but I'm just a kid like anybody else. And I really did appreciate that. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, listen, before we go on to the next point, which is probably time, uh, Trevor Adams gives us a super chat and asks a theological question that doesn't have anything directly to do with what we're talking about here. But since I've got two brilliant theological minds uh, on the show, thoughts on the universalist argument that if even some are lost, then in some sense God loses the war against sin and evil since he desires all saved. Leighton, would you like to speak to this issue? Yeah, that, that seems to assume that God wants everyone to be saved regardless of the means by which they're saved. And that's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that God wants those who trust in him to be saved. And so um, saying that God wants all to be saved is is predicated on the fact that he wants all to come to faith. He wants all to come to trust in him because that's the means that he has set as the parameters for salvation. And so the, the kind of God fails argument um fall short because it's assuming that God's trying to do something through some 
irresistible means by causing people to act, you know, according to what he wills for them to act versus uh, recognizing that he's created creatures with a will of their own and that he desires their, their will to align with his, but has allowed them to have that choice. Um, and I think Braxton, you, you, and I've talked about this before when you've been on the program that you may will for your children to go to college, but you also will for them to make that choice for themselves. And so you're not, you're not, in, you're not failing by allowing them to make a choice and then them, them choosing not to go to college. You haven't failed as a father because it was your choice to allow them to make that choice. And in the same way, God, God's not failing when uh, people choose to walk uh, away from him and ignore his precepts because it was his will to allow them to have that will and to have that, that freedom. Um, and you can speculate as to why God allows for that and why God doesn't create a world of automatons and ultimately controls and causes us to do what he wills us to do. But that would be a whole nother, you know, another discussion. That's not what he wants. Yeah, this, this, is, yeah, this is, wants. is one of those places where the universalist argues more like a Calvinist in the sense that, well, what are you, what are you saying? God's going to be eternally disappointed because either a, you know, he tried to save, but failed or, you know, one way or the other, whether it's through irresistible means I'm to like, save some sure, of damn others, I, or it's to irresistibly save 100% of humanity. And that's a, that, that kind of argumentation has to, you, you have to plug in a lot of certain other things into it to make it go. So for the Calvinists, it's, well, God doesn't really desire all men to be saved. He just desires all kinds of people and, and his elect, and he's going to save them. And it'd be eternally happy with the, the people he picked out for salvation, eternally happy that uh, the rest were damned for their sins that they couldn't have done it. See, you what's know? wrong with just yeah. saying, yeah, God will be sad. That's it. Right. That I mean, yeah. <laughs> He'll God, be sad that people are lost and, and went to hell. Yes. God doesn't lose uh, his own game, though, in the sense of the way he set it up. Because as Dr. Flowers uh, expressed, God set it up to where it would be genuine, trusting, you know, relationship. Right. Uh, God wants free creatures to freely trust and repent of their sins uh, upon hearing the gospel. And loves them enough to allow them not to. But, but so, so just like what he was saying, like, I want my I may have a desire that my girls go to college. But I also have a desire that they make free choice about things like that. Yeah. But you could state that as one desire and say I didn't get what I wanted, that I want my kids to freely choose to go to college. But built into I want my kids to freely choose to go to college is the understanding that, at least on our understanding, the three of us here, I'm building into that the fact that they get to make their own choice and it may not go the way I want. But that whole enterprise is what I wanted. I, right. I wanted them to freely so, be able to do yeah, that. The overarching desire is for mm -hmm. people to freely choose one way or the other, but within that desire, he wants them all to choose him, mm -hmm. but mm -hmm. not all will. Right. So, yeah. And, well, and I think yeah. from Trevor's follow up uh, question, there is he's asking on the side chat too. Um, I, I think he's coming from the perspective of, uh, you know, will will God or could God win it over in the end? Like as a universalist might say that you know, in time, even everybody in hell can eventually be won out of hell through the war that God continues to wage with the sin of their life. And, and you may speculate that something like that's happening, but I don't think the Bible ever reveals that that's what happens. Um, yeah. And, and so, once yeah, again, I, I you're making an assumption out. about the yeah. nature of hell. You're making an assumption that 
eternal conscious torment. That's first of all, that something in God's justice would preclude eternal conscious torment from being the justifiable punishment. But secondly, you're certain it would certainly. I guess I'm speaking directly. I don't mean this to sound direct toward you, Trevor. But uh, you, you're you're also precluding that there is no conditional immortality. That annihilationists are just wrong. Yeah. And you may hold that annihilationists are just wrong. But if the notion is that these people that go to hell are then they then they then die, yeah. well, uh, that's that. And, you know. and and thank you so much for the uh, super chat, Trevor. Mm-hmm. So, but Braxton was directing that towards the proverbial hypothetical, yes, universalist That's right. view, not not the Trevor view. Also, Steve yeah, Gregg he, is it seems like uh, Trevor. Yeah, tre- yeah, he mentioned Steve Gregg there too. So, like, because I think Steve Gregg, I think may, may, maybe mentioned something plausible with regard to the universal argument. I don't know what what the context of that quote is, but I, I mean, I'd love to find out in eternity that you know some form of universalism uh, is is true like god does somehow restore people from their place of hell into heaven through a time but I, I i don't see anywhere in the bible teaches that so that right. seems purely speculative to me and, yeah, steve, and you can hope for something that happens that the bible never talks about but i i, I don't imagine that steve speaks very uh, dogmatically about anything outside the pages of scripture because he's a very, a he's a very mature Hold on, the steve, bible guy what just because I know what he does think about this, I'll just tell everyone. Steve uh, thinks that the eternal conscious torment view is the least likely of the three. He thinks the conditional immortality view, annihilationism, is the most likely of the three. But he's open to the possibility of you know, evangelical universalism. Now, with me, I'm 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 different than that. I, evangelical universalism isn't even on the. It's on the table in the sense that I'm open that if that's true. And someone could demonstrate it to me or give me right. good reason. I would believe it. But it seems to be the least likely of the three. Well, and I also do want to, you know, I used to I used to kind of echo Leighton Cinemas that well, I kind of hope that it's true, you know, that inevitably. But then the more I thought about it, it, for me, it's like, well, is God just to punish, you know, the wicked and to 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 try to shoehorn universalism that it needs to be true? Or therefore, you're saying something unjust about God. I don't think that that argument flies at all. Mm-hmm. So, I, you know. And I didn't mean for us to get sucked directly into the sociology debate, but I do want to respond to this. Amber says, many love free will. First, I want to just say this. I understand what you're trying to say, and, and I, I don't take any offense at this. But I do want to say that it's. It, I do love that I have free will, but that is not why I believe I have free will. I believe I have free will because of, um, first of all, the argument from obviousness. Um, secondly, uh, I, I think there are good, uh, other good reasons to believe we all three have talked about this at great length. I think the Bible, uh, gives us a picture that is only understandable, uh, in, in that is on, that only works ultimately if you have libertarian free will. So it's not just that we love it. Like we, we really want it to be true. It's that we believe that it is true. Um, and it says they are, people love the free will until they are confronted with the reality that free will means my loved one is choosing to reject the gospel and the reality of eternal separation. Yes, I, there's never been a point in my life, and I do have loved ones who have chosen to reject Christ, and so there's never been a point in my life where I didn't think that it worked this way, whether I like it or not, is that we have free will and some people can freely reject. Of course, I hate that they're making that decision, um, but you know, to say that that's, well, see, this is the problem with free will. I mean, what I might 
be even more shocked by is the notion that they didn't just freely choose that, but that God determined that for them. Right. That would be even more uh, shocking and, and surprising. Yeah, to me, I, I mean, think. you could love something and it not be, but, you know, I, I used to love cigarettes, but, you know, when my dad died of lung cancer, you know, I, I, I love cigarettes until someone dies of lung cancer. Well, the, the fact is that a lot of smokers die of lung cancer. So just because you love your cigarettes doesn't mean that there's not an unfortunate thing you know that you have to deal with as part of reality and that's just the same thing that yeah i mean i don't i it's weird for me to say i love my free will i mean i know that you said that but i mean it's true i love certain things that i'm able to do (laughs) i love that i can eat i love that i can uh talk those are two of my favorite things determined to do that you know you would love eating it i love it whether i'm determined to love it or not yeah that's what i'm saying so (laughs) so i mean i don't know it seems weird to me to say that i love my free will but what I do, what I will say is that I, 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 because I think that we're right about free will, I prefer that over to, as opposed to the alternative. I prefer to be right than to be wrong is the real point. Right. Uh, Leighton, any thoughts on this theological issue before we move on? Well, either you, be, you believe in free will freely or God determined for you to believe in free will. And there's really no other uh, two options about that unless you're an atheist of some sort and and even then you've got the the naturalistic determinist and the you know uh, free will arguments even from among it, the atheist side of things and so that that's i think where it comes down to the practicality of it what's livable uh, even i think even the hardest determinist believes uh, lives like they believe their choices make a difference and their actions make a difference and that's and, and for for all practical purposes we've got to live as if our wills are free uh, regardless of whether you believe they really are or not. And even, yeah, have, I think, Braxton, you and, yeah, we've had that discussion before with even those atheists that did that study uh, that, that were, they're naturalistic determinists, but they came to the conclusion that the society is better when they believe in God and in free will. And so yeah, even though they don't believe in God or free will, they, they understand that society works better with a belief in God and free will. So mm-hmm. it's kind of funny. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. All right. Point number two, before we lose we're only on point number two. Yeah, slide number two uh, had some uh, interesting thing. Uh, well, actually, let's go ahead and go to three because it's, that's just saying stuff that we already said. Um, yeah. Um, one of the things that was in this is Camino President uh, J.P. DeGantz, who contributed to the study, told Christian Post that young people are not leaving churches in large numbers because of a lack of ministry outreach. Quote, we never spent more money in the history of the church to transmit our faith to young people, and yet they are falling away at higher higher numbers, uh, DeGant said. So that's that's really the point that I wanted to uh, re- mention with, with that, that clip, is because, similar to the apologetics discussions, mm-hmm. right, mm-hmm. We, we've constantly heard about how we're, we've gone through this golden age of apologetics, right? And mm-hmm. same with local church outreach dumping all kinds of money i remember just i mean for the last 20 years back when it was oh we got to get millennials 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 everything was about getting millennials and then it became about getting gen z because younger younger people are, are leaving so you have no shortage of money being spent in the local churches to cater and try to you know uh, appeal to younger people and then there's no shortage of apologetics everywhere and yes 
yeah, and and really on that point, let's say a couple of things first. I know this is not the principal point you want to make. First of all, Trevor Adams, who we just finished up with, is complete has taken courses with all three of us on the screen right now at Trinity College of the Bible and Theological Seminary. That uh, seminary that's Trinity Sem Trinity S E M dot edu, and we'd sure love for you to come check us out. Um, and then also, I want to put. Um, Eric says, I agree. Christianity is shrinking because people can fact check the false things Christians say. The dogmatism of Christianity is one of the reasons it's shrinking. Now, let me say something, Eric. Uh, in the video that I, I meant to say this earlier, in the video that you're going to see, if you watch, that I'm going to release sometime by Monday with James Coons, he talks about this and talks about, you know, we talk about the point that we're talking here about the Western world and maybe America specifically. Yeah. And we're talking about the church shrinking or Christianity shrinking. Uh, and atheism, though this is not the point of what we're saying here, atheism is growing. However, what we mean by that is there are more atheists than there were. But globally speaking, so percentage-wise, globally speaking, the religion is outpacing atheism and Christianity is growing so that actually it's it's, even though you might have bigger numbers, it's actually not the picture you're thinking it is, and and we're still growing. Yeah. It's just that if you start getting provincial about the place you live, you know, but then, of course, you could also do that with other places and say, well, yeah, but what about that place or that place where there is an increase, right? right. The, the bottom line is you want to talk about what, what really matters globally is what the numbers are globally, and globally, it's, it's not happening that way. All right. Yeah. Uh, but, but interestingly enough, I mean, at what point do you become like the federal government where you have you're dumping money after money after money and resource after resource after resource. And you're thinking apologetics is the silver bullet. You're thinking that, oh, if we get a younger contemporary music band or whatever else, or if we put uh, Xboxes in the youth room or whatever. Uh, or I do think that'll help. Or have Xboxes <laughs> plus apologetics every single night at, at church for the youth or whatever. I mean, Just I, don't make a Christian video game because they're always terrible. Yeah, it's like, yeah, but th the thing is, that's not what's working. What's working, Pritchett? Apparently, it's stable homes. Stable homes. So if you're going to be throwing money at that, why aren't we throwing more resources at that? Mm -hmm. And What's the resource? Like just training, uh, awareness, that sort of thing? When was the last time... Free counseling, paid for counseling? When was the last time our church had a men's retreat? Maybe recently. I don't know. I honestly don't know. <laughs> When was the last time you heard about our church having a men's group? I, I, we have a men's group every Tuesday. Andy goes. Yeah. Yeah. How many people go in the church compared to the group? At, at There's the like four church. people in that group, I think. Right. So, <laughs> right. And our church has, what, several hundred members? So yeah. I, I, I think that, uh, and I'm not picking on just our church, I'm just saying in general, these sorts of targeted ministries have been so over-focused on young people that we have started, like I said, back in the 80s and 90s, it was Promise Keepers, it was, you know, focused on the family, all that stuff. We're not doing that kind of thing anymore. Yeah, why, aren't, why isn't Texas Baptist doing Promise Keepers or something, Layton? What are well, we doing? We do, what? I mean, there are, there are actually, there are ministries that are geared to men of and women and are, all yeah. kinds of things within denominational work. But there's, there's another element here, too, and I, I don't, th this kind of came to mind just, I guess, maybe based on some other reading and study with regard to the number of, of people leaving the church, um, that the, the shift I think seems like from the church is that that shift to try to almost win people over to Christianity by appealing to um, how much better uh, the Christian life is than 
a life outside of Christ, you know, and, and trying to talk it up, so to speak, almost like a, like selling it, like, Hey, your life is going to be so much better with Christ. When, when the Christianity of the Bible doesn't sound like that at all, you know, come lay down your life for this, um, you know, your life, you're going to suffer for my name's sake. The world is going to hate you. Uh, it sounds just the opposite. Whereas the, the Christian, uh, Westernized, uh, United States form of it, especially, is not come and die, but come so that you can have a happier life, you know, and be the happier you. And, and then there's the, then the, the atheist in the side chat, they're, they're making good points because what they're saying is, Hey, Christianity's not meeting up to what the church is trying to sell it as because the Bible doesn't sell Christianity like that. Um, and so it seems like to me that the next, the future, future generations, um, I, I know when you talk to young people, they, they, they won't, they're not willing to live something for something that they're not willing to die for. In other words, it, it's, it's like that old CS Lewis quote that Christianity, if it's false is of no importance, if it's true, it's of the, the greatest importance, but it, what it cannot be is just moderately important. It can't right. be just, you know, halfway. And that's why that, that, that nominal Christianity that people try to have here in the West, especially where it's just kind of like, you know, it's just something you tag on with Easter and Christmas and things, and you just kind of halfway live it. And you just kind of tag Jesus on the end of your prayers occasionally. Um, that kind of Christianity doesn't really appeal to generations because Again, it's just nominal. It's just surfacey stuff, and it doesn't match what they read in the scriptures if they take Christianity seriously to any degree, and and therefore it's not really a life changing uh, movement. It's just a a nominal surface level badge that people wear. And so what people are falling out of, I think people are just being more honest in this generation than they were previous generations. Probably the mm -hmm. same number of people were nominal in the forties in the fifties as they are now. They're just honest about it. Now they're, they're getting boldness to come right out and just say what they feel and believe because they have enough people within the culture standing with them on social media to be able to say, Oh, I'm an atheist. And it's, it's almost, like with any other agenda, the world out there, you know, when you have the internet making the world a lot smaller, you can find your group. You can find people who identify with you or your, your journey. And so you're emboldened by them to speak out more boldly. And then you got Twitter platforms and all kinds of other platforms where every Joe, Dick and Harry can give their, um, you know, their opinions about everything else out there in the world. And it sounds like it's just overwhelming this group of people. There are just so many of them now. Well, no, they just not, they have a voice and they have people bolstering them, their, their views. And that's why you see it growing more and more. I, I, I really do think in the forties. That's 50s, so true. Layton. That, that was so well number. put. That was so well, well put. You. That is exactly what happens. That's why you hired me as a Trinity professor, isn't it? It sure is. You, you get, no, you, that's one thing that the internet has, oh, it's because we have access to all this information. Well, yeah, and maybe that has, I mean, I'm sure that has a lot to do with these things. But it also means you get around in, in echo, you get into very large echo chambers really fast if you want to. Yeah. Right. Um, yeah, I had here, Derek says, and thank you for the super chat, says, this is the kind of show I've wanted y'all to have with Layton. I love the topic and wanted to hear you guys and Layton speak on it. Here's five dollars. Well, thank you. Yeah, I wanted to have, uh, we wanted to have Layton on for this. I mean, um, there's a lot of, in the comments, there's a lot of one-string banjo stuff, but people don't realize that Director of Evangelism and Apologetics and Professor That's of, his title. Yeah, and Professor of Theology and then, of course, 
uh, he, he does a lot of uh, leadership stuff here at Trinity as well, as, as do you. Y'all are both kind of mm-hmm. have some courses on, on like leadership stuff. So like um, there, there's, there's plenty of strings on that banjo and, and people just like Leighton personally. And so they want to hear what he has to say on these topics. But um, m- my takeaway from this is maybe less infra- we need to we need to start uh, in in local churches because even even Layton's position as you know director and and doing denominational level stuff that doesn't the denominational convention can produce all the materials that that churches should use but if the church doesn't avail themselves of those resources it doesn't it doesn't matter so at the mm-hmm. local church level I think we need to become less focus on how oh, how are we going to reach young people how are we going to reach young people and more focus on how are we going to strengthen families um because what i heard layton talking about in the beginning though is all of the things that he he did with his kids as they grew up always mm-hmm. showing them the, the the reality of the faith mm-hmm. you know and mm-hmm. of course here at the end he talked about the emphasis on suffering so i i think that we need we need the kind of discipleship that that uh um targets this issue and makes also makes space for blended families makes space for like you know um, my wife was divorced right and then remember there's a lot of divorced people in our audience that are well okay well i i can't strengthen my marriage now i don't have one uh but you still have involvement with your children and then if you ever do remarry i mean there's still we we gotta we gotta put an emphasis on on insofar as you can Mm -hmm. christianity in the home needs to matter more than getting more young bodies to the church. Yeah. And that will turn around and get, because one of the things I'm not going to have you pull up the clip. But one of the things that you said was uh, one of the things in the article that uh, I pulled it up, but I won't tell you to bring it up because we've got to move on. You just but said that. One other thing they were saying was, is that it's 25. If you, if you strengthen, start to strengthen families now, it's 25 to 30 years before you see the payoff. Mm-hmm. If you started the process now. Well, I I wanted to say that uh, I meant to mention this a while ago, but my pastor, our pastor, last Sunday preached a fantastic message on, uh, and he mentioned uh, Nancy Piercy's new book. I don't know if that's the one, maybe that's the one, but he was talking about, he rolled out this research, and you can go over to the One Life uh, YouTube channel and and watch the sermon, I I encourage you to, and he talks about the research, and what it shows is that if if you're talking about evangelicals, no, uh, yeah, you're talking about evangelicals. You've got the, he doesn't use this terminology, but this is the terminology that we know is in the literature, extrinsic versus intrinsically religious. So if you're extrinsically religious, you're the in-name only nominal Christian that uh, uh, that Layton's talking about. If you're intrinsically religious, it means that you really do believe. And there were some markers that he gave examples of. For example, uh, you go to church at least three times a month on average. That That's someone who goes to church. This is, we're talking about men here for this. Yeah goes to church three times a month on average, believes in the importance of personal conversion, and then there was a number of other things, um, and this is an extrins- uh, sorry, intrinsically religious person. These people, the stats on those dudes and their marriages are unbelievably good. It's the people who are extrinsically religious, but not intrinsically religious. The nominal that he was talking about. They are among the worst. You would think that someone who like you'd think like maybe someone who's an act you know like actively a hater or something. No, it's people who are nominally religious, but that's all. They don't. It's not intrinsic. Well, it that's, mean that's because their their life matches their belief. When your your beliefs don't match your behavior, 
that's the friction. And there's, there's the, the hypocrisy in a sense of, you know, that's why you could have two atheists who really genuinely love each other and they, but they're both really honest with each other about what they believe and who they are. And they can actually have externally a really strong, healthy looking marriage with, you know, decent kids that are raised right and do the right things and all those kinds of things because they're, they're real. Um, they're, they're genuine with themselves. They're not being fake. And that's the thing with the nominal, the more the nominal Christians, that's why they do much more damage in, you know, raising a child in a nominal Christian home because the children are close enough to them to see the fakeness. They, they see the whitewashed tomb with the dead bones inside. They see the, all that, 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 what that produces and they are turned off by it. They, they like, I, I, I want to remove the mask. I want to per- stop pretending and I just want to be who I really am. And, and that's why those studies have to take that into account by actually looking at those who are genuinely Christian in their lifestyles and the things they do and how they live their life on a daily basis um, and, and what they truly believe in that sense versus those who are just nominally consider themselves Christians because they live in America or whatever, you know. Um, that, yeah, and someone might say be, this late. They might be like, well, this is the no true Scotsman fallacy. You're just saying those Christians you don't like. We're not counting those. No, this is the kind of terminology that's used in this work in, in looking at these kind of yeah. uh, things. And I mean, you know, most of the people who've listened have heard um, IP's debates with uh, Arn Raw and Matt Dillahunty and others about, um, you know, whether Christianity is bad for society and all those kind of things. And you're going to hear this sort of language in the articles because this is this is how you have to talk about it. Because of course, of course, it is. Of course. Uh, there are going to be Christ- there are going to be people who proclaim the name of Christ who really don't care or seem to be committed in, in any serious way. Yeah. And so you would have to put a distinction. Yeah, I was going to say first, thank you, Channel Angel, for the twenty dollars super chat. Mm-hmm. Um, Eric Fisher has a comment that I want pulled up, and I, I also see one from uh, Amber Marone. This one, um, yeah, uh, that one. Uh, this will, but uh, Amber Marone, I don't know if you could bring it up, but she wrote. Um, your schedule and your bank statement are going to say more about your priorities than people realize. And that brings a smile to my face because my dad uh, used to say the exact same thing. And it, and it's anything that reminds me of my dad is heartwarming, but uh, it's, it's so true. It, it's you, you look at what, what people spend their money on and what people, how, how they arrange their schedule, what's, what their life's like. And so, I mean, just speaking, I'm not trying to brag on myself as, as anything. Go ahead. My dad did teach me that. Humility is accurately assessing yourself. Right. And one of the things that I've made an effort to do in our family as our kids grew up is we wanted to prioritize family dinners and we wanted to prioritize a Bible study, which granted as the kids got older and they had... It gets harder. Yeah, with with work schedules and everything else. I mean, you you don't do it every single night. Mm -hmm. But even to this day with two uh, 17 and 20-year-olds... Yeah, basically adult kids. Yeah, more often than not. We're still sitting we're talking about the Bible. Yeah, and we talk about the Bible and faith and Christianity and all that stuff. Um, so I 100% agree with that point. And it's also good to take stock, to stop, pause, write out your daily life and look at your bank statement and see what am I doing here? And is there ways that I could, I could reshuffle this so that what I say I prioritize in my mm-hmm. life is reflected in what I'm doing and spending my resources on in my life. And bringing those two together. But uh, go back to Eric Fisher. Um, oh, I was going to put this up. Being a family that was previously atheist with four young kids and are now Christian except husband, it's a much different experience for my kids, obviously, of course. It's hard to explain. Wow. Yeah. 
So, uh, well, we need to reach the, the husband with the gospel. Well, praise the Lord that uh, you came out of that. I, I know who this is, and uh, I love her to death. She's a great um, follower of the show, and um, I've heard her testimony, and we praise God for that testimony. Uh, what happened to uh, Eric Fisher's comment? First, I, I love the, the, the picture there, V for victory, if, if you remember the old Mark Singer uh, I thought the it Beast was Beastmaster uh, television series. I thought it was, it was B a for Vendetta, and then uh, then it was followed up by V the Final Battle, which was excellent up until like the last ten minutes, where the ending was monumentally stupid. Gosh, I hope he just works at Verizon, and that that'd be hilarious. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But uh, well, it looks like the V uh, um, the V. Go ahead, Pritchett. Thing. Yeah, I, I think part of the problem is people not uh, feeling connected to the church as an institution that can be taken seriously. I think that's part of the reason why things like Eastern Orthodox is growing. Yeah, as I mentioned earlier, my son, you know, we love our church. We love One Life. And uh, my son was cur curious about the Eastern Orthodox Church. And when we went, he loved it, said, do you want to go back? No, but I, I do see the, the appeal uh, that a lot of people are checking into that. And I just read an article where also in the South especially, but just nationwide in the United States, Catholicism is growing. And there are certain states where well, Protestants still outnumber Catholics overall, but, you know, Catholicism is rivaling the attendance of Southern Baptist churches now in places like Missouri. And so it was a very interesting article. And we're going to pick on Catholics here in a minute <laughs> when we get to the next one. Um, Yippee. Yeah. But, um, <laughs> well, they, they come up too. Uh, anecdote, well, um, in the next one where they're, they're calling out certain particular things, but uh, that's, I wanted to segue into that. Um, I try to have a little bit less hard of a segue than some shows, but, but speaking of church decline and Orthodox Catholicism and all of that mainline Protestants, mm -hmm. even um, another thing that has been uh, talked about, and this was in an opinion piece in the Washington times about why the church is declining is they think it's the LGBTQ stuff. That's well, it's real easy, yeah. Pritchett. I mean, look, Go back and listen to the episodes where, where I've talked about TikTokers, because what I'm doing there principally in most of those is looking for like searching for why I left Christianity or why I'm an atheist or why I left the church. And it really there's like five or six things I mean, like almost, people that have watched those know it comes down to usually like five or six things. One of these five or six different things. It's going to be original sin, a very Augustinian understanding of original sin that you're guilty before you've done anything wrong. Uh, oh, heads up on uh, uh, Junior McDonald's. You channel, just did an just episode did a thing on Romans five correcting the Augustinian stuff. Say the guy's name again. Uh, Junior McDonald. Junior McDonald. All right. So it's original sin, hell, uh, and of course it's an eternal conscious torment understanding of hell. Although some have figured out now on TikTok that they that there's other views and so they they bash those too. But it's hell. It's original sin. It's uh, human or biblical sexuality. The problems with biblical sexuality. Um. And sometimes like evolution and things like that. Uh, I'm probably missing a couple, but there's just a handful. Right. And I think, and I think one that that is also mentioned though is hard to categorize, but you can once you know it's there is is what we've always heard, which is, well, people treated me bad in church. Yeah. Um, uh, I'm not a Christian anymore. I, you would not believe how many times, and people who've seen it know. I'm responding to a video, and the person says, "Christianity is false. I don't believe in Christianity anymore. It's a bunch of bunk." Because this pastor treated me bad. Yeah. Okay, I want to sympathize because there have been some people hurt by pastors. 
But at the same time, your pastor being a dirtbag does not make Christianity false. The channel is a folk theology transition, uh, if you're curious about looking that up on YouTube. Uh, but uh, that's why... That's a title that just invites more questions. From folk me. theology transition. <laughs> yeah, FTT, yeah. Um, but this opinion piece took a You still okay, Layton? You still with us? Yeah, he's like... Oh. Yeah. <laughs> he, he's entertaining himself because you, you, you did what, you know... He, we're sucking up all the air, but I want to get Layton's understanding of this because he's in the thick of it in the in the Baptist denomination, and they just had a big uproar about whether or not this SBC is going liberal and all that, and I think that's a— Wait, wait, wait. Before you go on to Layton, I know we keep doing this, but in a sense, this is kind of what our show is. But you know the, you know, um, the book that has been used for everything now since Roe versus Wade, The Handmaid's Tale? Did you know that the that in the book The Handmaid's Tale, you know, you've got this this authoritarian religious power that is forcing the few women that can still become pregnant into a very dystopian situation and it's all done with like Rachel and Leah and religious imagery and all this kind of stuff. The freedom fighters on the outside that are trying to liberate these women are the Baptists. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think that's great. Handmaid's Tale and Harry Potter are the only books that. It's just that you don't find that. I don't think any. Yeah. It, but but in the book back in the eighties, it was the Baptists were kind of the good guys. Yeah, if you're forty and younger, the only books you've ever heard of is Harry Potter and Handmaid's Tale. Um, but go ahead and bring up. Uh, I think it's number five, uh, because the opinion. Are we still going to try to get through all these? Surely yeah. not. Yeah. Um, one Fore- of the tools. Forehead time. Yep. One of the tools the devil has long used with great success is trying to keep humans. In a state of conflict with one another, this makes us question ourselves, uh, each other, and ourselves. In the current era, he is using homosexuality as a tool to not only pit human beings against one another, but to tear down Christianity itself. Satan's success uh, using this particular tool is alarming, and if you, and part of that success would be, if you want to pr- go ahead and pull up the next one, uh, part of the success uh, would be, yeah, it's a lot of young people are leaving the church because of this, but what he points out is. To that, to try to cater to the very people that are leaving the church over the LGBTQ stuff, uh, he goes on to say the governing document for the United Methodist is called the Book of Death- Discipline. Among other things included in the Book of Discipline are the church standings that are uh, active, practicing gay individuals may not serve in the clergy, and the UMC will not perform same-sex marriages. This belief is in keeping with thousands of years of human tradition. Uh, and the Word of God and the Holy Bible. There is a movement within the UMC, however, to change the Book of Discipline to reflect the current cultural trends and endorse homosexual relationships. This does not sit well with many this past week. 23 congregations in the Baltimore-Washington Conference of the United Methodist Church received permission to leave the organization. The congregation said they were leaving over the UMC, how the UMC handles the practice of homosexuality and the ordination of marriage and marriage of self about practicing homosexuals. Homosexuals, a regional office news uh, release stated. In short, gays are splitting this long-standing tra- uh, traditional Christian church, and the Methodists aren't alone. And we don't have to get to the rest of it, but I was just saying. Well, they're splitting it. The UMC is splitting their own church. Right. The UMC is, is, is split. Uh, well, he goes on to talk about the, the denominational split over this issue. And then he talks about how the PCUSA and other mainline denominations had already done this. Mm-hmm. And so you have, on the one hand, you have young people saying they don't like the, the church's position on this, and so they leave the church. On the other hand, you have churches being LGBTQ affirming, right? And whether it's in clergy or 
same-sex marriage or whatever. They have all that. And guess what's happening to them that do try to say, okay, to all those people that are leaving, hey, we're, we're a place where we're affirming, everyone's welcome, all this kind of stuff. We don't, we believe that God has no problem with any of this, you know. And guess what happens to those churches? They die. They die. There is not, go to any Episcopalian church anywhere, and what you're going to find. Well, if they're not the conservative one. There's a conservative group. You know, of, you're talking about the PCA versus the PCUSA. That's No, I'm talking about the Episcopalians. There's not a conservative and non-conservative. Wasn't there like the African uh, Episcopalian group that became? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. But, yeah, yeah. But, but the, um, um, like the main one that's in, a, in communion with the global angle. Yeah, it's liberal. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and you're going you're gonna to find young people there. And those liberal churches die. They, they die. Because... Look at what you've been saying. Like, if you don't like the worst, you don't think that might be true. I know we said, it says on the screen, let Leighton talk. But, uh, but you know, you, th you think about these uh, people that are seeing the internet and seeing everything for what it is. And that's the whole thing, right? Yeah. Is, oh, people can look and they see that. And now they see all these Christian claims are nonsense and all that. Well, I don't think they see that these Christian claims are nonsense. I think they see a lot of information that, that they interpret it and they, and they look at. And that's, of course, what we're doing. We're engaging with that, right? But, um, but now, yeah, I lost it again. Yeah, so the point is, young people say they leave the oh, church. Oh, but what they will do is church. they'll look online and they'll see, oh, wait, the church, the Bible actually says this. Mm -hmm. And this gay, you know, this, this, this gay spokesperson, you know, this Brandon whatever the, the, you know, like one of these gay pastors, a Robertson, Brandon Robertson, people like that. Like, well, yeah, they say, they say that, but when I look at the Bible and I can literally like look at, um, a lexicon or something, just look at it. It's like, Oh yeah. Well, I'm not going to just pretend then, you know, yeah. it's like, yeah, I agree with you that people don't want to pretend. It's just that in a, in those kind of churches is where the pretend is kind of happening theologically yeah. pretending the Bible well, says what it yeah. does. Yeah, I think it's the same thing that I was saying earlier with the, you know, the call of the next generation. They're not going to want to live for something that they're not willing to die for. You're calling them to a higher standard is actually what's going to do Christianity better is by calling people to a higher standard, not a lower standard. And so sometimes I think that the church thinks it has to compromise to become more and more like the culture and, and kind of adapt to whatever popular popular within the culture in order for the church to succeed and survive. And what uh, Jonathan is saying is the statistics are showing just the opposite. When the church does become more and more liberal and just accepting of every cultural norm, that's actually what kills the church. Why? Well, because like you said, Braxton, the people begin to see the obvious hypocrisy and you claim to believe this is the true book uh, until it doesn't fit your cultural norms. You're not willing to stand for something uh, even when it's difficult or not popular, you're only willing to stand for it and to hold to it when it's when it's popularly accepted, um, and and th that that ends up doing more damage to the Christian faith than it does help it, um, because you think I'm helping the Christian faith by adapting it to look more like our culture, and you're actually doing just the opposite. And so, you know, I, I think there's a lot of truth in that. Yeah. So, yeah. if if being welcoming isn't isn't doing anything to win anyone over to these churches, mm -hmm. but yet embracing a more welcoming stance is doing a lot to shrink the church. According to this guy. And he was talking about 
you know, uh, you have the PCUSA that's long already been there, right? Mm -hmm. where, where, and the Anglican Church has now gotten to the point where, I mean, it's almost dead in the UK anyway, but they're, mm -hmm. now they're like thinking this is going to help it, and I, others are saying it's going to be a death knell. He was pointing out certain Catholics that are doing it, and then, uh, you know, trying to steer the, their local parishes that way, and they keep getting knocked down by higher-up bishops and all that. And then he also even mentioned the Southern Baptist Convention, because apparently there's been a little hype that there there's a a group within the Southern Baptist Convention that, th that, that thinks that the convention is going more liberal, and they think that this egalitarianism issue that they just, you know, put the bit was the gateway into LGBT. I, I didn't see any of that. I didn't even see the people that I thought would be more egalitarian in the Southern Baptist Convention put up much of a fight. I mean, Rick Warren gave his speech. Well, Clayton, you were there the, at the did, SBC. Did you is notice? Yeah, I was there. There was no nuance, which is usually the case when it comes to these things. If you were there, you saw, and I don't know if everybody listened to it because a lot of times it's just clips. It started with, I think they, they yousted a very liberal church with the, the woman as the senior pastor was up defending herself and she was screaming in the microphone kind of a thing. And of course they just yousted oh, her immediately. And then, and then there was another one that had um, a, a pastor who was convicted of paleophilia or something horrible who they were yousting out and he gets yousted immediately. And then it's the Rick Warren thing. And, and it's almost like get rid of the liberal, get rid of the liberal. And now here's the Rick Warren thing. And it's a whole nother situation. There's no nuance. There's no, um, there's no, okay, well, what about the churches that use pastor as more of a pastoral label, like a children's pastor, for example, or something like right. that? Are we throwing them out too? Um, because that was Bridget's point. Most, yeah. Yeah, I don't think most churches are wanting to throw out the churches who have children's pastors. I think most of us uh, aren't, aren't that, to that point, but yet the statement you just approved is doing that, and and that's and that's where there's no nuance there. There wasn't, and that's oftentimes happens in these kinds of debates. They just remove all the nuance and make it just a black and white kind of an issue. And this mm -hmm. isn't just a black and white kind of issue. Um, now. It, would it would it be easier if all the churches had the exact same vernacular with all of the different um, modes of ordination and all the different titles of overseer or bishop or pastor or all those kinds of things? Would it make it easier? Yes, but that's not the way the autonomy of the local church works in Baptist circles. It's just not. It's not that cut and dry. It's not that simple. But yet when you get into big convention like you know, when the microphones aren't working like what was happening there and people are yelling across this and it's just, it just, there's no nuance. I mean, for goodness sake, they changed the Baptist faith and message 2000. I guess the, the new one now is 2023. They changed it with a simple little 10 minute vote on the floor. They didn't have a committee come together and look at all this stuff or change anything like this. Just one guy gets up and makes a proposal. I think we should change the Baptist faith and message to say this instead. And they all go, amen. And they voted it in. I was like, never seen anything like that before just on a floor just of people just talking and raising i, I just, is that giving you some ideas Layton? is that strange. what's going it's giving giving you some <laughs> yeah, ideas just, there hey let's, let's finally <laughs> deal with this calvinism thing and message yeah i'll just make a quick if, if you get the right person on the stage calling the right microphone and you know call to order you know and call the the call to vote and you know oh, this, yeah. this and this and you get it right order you can get anything passed in a few seconds on the floor apparently um and it's it, it it does it is it is frustrating because for me you guys know and and Rick Warren made this point um and and I disagree with Rick Warren on some things that he's said about 
his egalitarian views, by the way. So I'm not defending Rick completely here. Now, if you listen to Andy Wood, the pastor of Saddleback now, he's a soft complementarian. Um, it very clearly the church holds to a soft complementarian perspective. If you listen to Andy Wood's explanation in his video, um, unlike Rick, who's a little bit harder to understand where he stands on particular issues. But, um, but when, when he, he makes the point about how, you know, we, we allowed for Calvinists to be in the convention, we've allowed this, we're, we're a bigger tent than, than these secondary issues. Even Al Mohler calls it a secondary uh, issue. And he reads the quote where Al Mohler calls it a secondary issue. I am more of a bigger tent guy because I, 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 I think that we should be able to work together with people who disagree with us over the philosophical issue of compatibilism, for example, or over the issue of uh, dynamic omniscience that I've gotten in trouble for saying, I don't think we should have thrown out everybody who believes in more of a dynamic perspective or annihilationists. I don't think we should throw out all the annihilationists out of the SBC or egalitarians like Jonathan. I don't think they should all be thrown out of the SBC. I, I think our tent should be big enough to allow for some of those nuances um, of belief. And I don't think that makes us liberal. I, I really, I know some people do, but I, I just don't think that makes SBC liberal because it's willing to allow for the priesthood of every believer and the autonomy of the local church to decide on secondary matters of the you, faith. You don't think there's really any danger of like real liberalism, like LGBTQ affirming and any of that stuff ever happening in the Southern Baptist Convention or at least? Well, that's the slippery slope argument that, oh, if you ordain women, the next thing you'll be doing is ordaining, ordaining homosexuals or something like that. And I just... That, that to me, if you're using the same arguments to uh, promote a particular view, I can see how that slippery slope argument might work. But egalitarians, at least the ones that I've listened to seriously, just like with the annihilationists, when I listen to their views, they're not making liberal slippery slope arguments like, hey, we don't really believe in the inerrancy of scripture or the authority of scripture. They're not making those kinds of arguments in order to hold to their egalitarianism. Well, plus uh, it's not like Leighton, it's not like we don't have already a number of denominations that are egalitarian and are very conservative. Yeah. I mean, right. so yeah. the Assembly of God, assembly of God. nowhere close yeah, right, right. to affirming LGBT. So yeah. I'm just curious though, because if you've got weak families, right, in, in the church and it's not, it's not passing the faith on to the next generation, and then you've got this LGBTQ stuff that's actually splitting denominations. And then when you when you do embrace it, uh, overwhelmingly the data shows that these denominations shrink in, in significance, both uh, here in the United States. And, of course, the Anglican Church is like gasping its last breath, from what I understand. So um, I think that I think that these issues are, are issues that you, you know, traditional family values traditional orthodoxy on biblical sexuality and ethics. I think these are hills to die on more so than the egalitarianism, complementarianism, more so on the uh, nature of hell or soteriology or whatever. These are like the real issues because these seem more than anything. If you do listen to the young people who are saying they're running from the church because of, of that issue, if you make it more tall, you know, acceptable for them by becoming affirming, your church will die. Because, like, you know, the, the people who want genuine Christianity. You know, it makes me think up. of a picture, yeah. Pritchett. It makes me think about, like, the big tent thing made me think of it. Imagine we've got, like, a deflated balloon, yeah. okay? 
and we have made the space in that balloon for all of these different secondary issues. And this is the Southern Baptist balloon. Okay. And so, so that balloon is the size that it is or the space that it is, or provides that space because at various point in its history, people have, have gone in one direction in that balloon or the other direction where we're at now that people need to realize is the balloon is being actually blown up so that all the space is being taken up. And what that means is everything that the Baptist faith and message technically allows for is going to exist in some Southern Baptist church and more than that is going to exist. So Southern Baptists have got to get to a point where like Leighton is saying, like we realize we, we recognize how much are we actually willing to let be in that space? Uh, it's really should be, you know, like, what would you nix out? Um, it's, it's an evangelicalism that allows for secondary doctrinal issues. I think one of the mainstays for Southern Baptist that's always been there that won't change is the eternal security of the believer, or as it's commonly known, once saved, always saved. I doubt that's going to go away anytime soon. Other than that, I, I don't know of too many Baptist distinctives that or I don't baptism think by immersion, you know, baptism by immersion, baptism by immersion, yeah. all those kinds of yeah, yeah, maybe some of those things, but um, yeah, and, and again, I, I understand. I, I think Pritchard, I think in an earlier episode, I was listening to you guys talks through some of this that I, I agree with what you were saying with regard to their, you know, you don't have to stay in the Southern Baptist Convention if it doesn't fit what what best describes you. You know, it's not that big of a deal to you know, become a part of the non-denominational group or some other denomination if it better fits and labels you versus the concept and idea that you've got to change or make the SBC look like you, exactly like you. Um, And I I think that's sometimes a healthier attitude to have when approaching this issue than to feel like, um, you know, feel like you have to make the SBC, you know, and everybody in it look just like you in order for them to fit. And that's, that's part of the problem, I think, with this 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 movement of trying to of doctrinal fidelity that that doctrinal fidelity loop just gets smaller and smaller and smaller and smaller uh, to the point where even the people who are setting the rules don't fit in it really anymore. Um, I, I just I'm just really turned off by that kind of mentality, um, and and I, I at the same time I understand why people want doctrinal fidelity because you want people to believe the same way you do. And you really hold to a doctrine. I mean, somebody in your side chat was going, it's so obvious women aren't supposed to be preachers, you know, this kinds of things. Well, there's some people who think it's so obvious that God loves everybody and died. Jesus died for everybody. It's so obvious that he did that, but yet there's we still allow people the in the SBC that don't, that don't believe it. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, <laughs> there, there are p- things that seem so obvious to some people, um, that just, I cannot believe anybody would ever, you know, you can't, you can't possibly have anybody affirming something different than what I see is obvious in scripture, but yet there are people who make, uh, you know, interpretive arguments that are typically well-reasoned and have scriptural support for annihilationism or egalitarianism or this view or that view that when you hear them out, you know, you could see why reasonably somebody can still be someone who holds to a high authority of scripture holds to Jesus Christ and belief in Jesus Christ is the way of salvation and truly have a genuine faith, but yet hold to other views on some of these secondary issues. Um, and, and I may disagree with you. I, 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 as many of you know, who listen to my other program, no, I vehemently disagree with some other people in my denomination right now, but I can still in maturity love and get along with them in my denomination. And I, I don't know, 
I, I don't know. Maybe, maybe if they'll get along with you, maybe I you can. Yeah. I'm sure I would be cast out uh, of the denomination by some uh, pretty, pretty quickly. In fact, so Pritchett, do we need to go on to any more of these? Yes. Cause we want to end on. We can't get all of them. So pick one. Well, okay. Bring up uh, eight. Here's some good news from across the, uh, I, I like this article. Uh, some good news from uh, Australia, though. Uh, the, the title of the article caught my attention because it says, Gen Z Jim Bros resurrecting Christianity as religion makes godlike gains on social media. So Generation Z is uh, in Australia is, in Australia is still, I would say, arguably more progressive than the United States on a mm-hmm. lot of issues, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but here's here's uh, this article, and it just made me happy. It says, donning, uh, donning speed dealer sunnies and a T-shirt depicting a muscle Jesus, Hugo Burns is a larger-than-life character in his Alice Springs community. The 19-year-old is self-described founding father of the liftwear brand Sunday Mass and represents a growing countercultural movement of Generation Z Christian bodybuilders. Everyone's like, oh, you got to be like, edgy and progressive he says we're like nah i want to go back and interesting about about the father's thing uh mr birds was not raised in a, a catholic household in fact his father rejected catholicism at school he went to a christian's boys school in sydney and was forced into this stuff while he was a teenager listening to metal and didn't really want to take it he said meanwhile burns describes his uh mother as spiritual someone who keeps rocks and crystals around the house but his newfound faith was not but his newfound faith was not inspired by either one of his parents and so it goes on to talk about you know this sort of countercultural movement among gen z that 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 fitness and bodybuilding and they make a bunch of um silly memes and stuff like i saw this one thing that said the last supplements if you know what supplements are you know like whey protein and creatine and I think everyone knows what that yeah. means. And, and, you know, they're, they're doing all of this clever wordplay, and it's growing in, among Gen Zers because if you look at, like, TikTok and YouTube, fitness influencers are a massive thing, right? I mean, they have huge audiences. And so this kind of Christian movement among Gen Zers, especially one of the key figures not even coming from a Christian background, they're getting into this and it's like instead of being edgy christian they're like uh no we're gonna go back to like traditional stuff and i just that made me happy uh because it, it reminds me you know why are they being more conservative less progressive and it reminded me of a thing so if you want to pull up uh 11 uh here it reminded me of of all the stuff that i've read over the past few years about do you boast about your fitness you'll unavoidably become right wing and Joe Rogan slams liberals for blaming health and fitness as far right. And Jim bros are more likely to, these are all headlines of articles to be right wing blank holes, science confirms and all of this stuff. And so, you know, it, it's interesting that, that this, this kind of appeal to so many things that I, I think, because I, I remember um, somebody was saying here recently that even now that uh, Mark Zuckerberg um has been doing jujitsu and all this stuff and getting pretty in shape. It's gonna lead he, you to conservatism. He's reversed a lot of his like hardline policies on Facebook <laughs> and all of this stuff. They were talking about that, and I, it's not like he's a full fledged. And now he's gonna now. fight Elon Musk. Yeah, but 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 they're saying like you know he's pulled back a lot of their censorship things at, at Facebook. He's taken a more moderate <laughs> position than he had in recent years. 
And I, I do think that this is interesting to me because, you know, I'm really into fitness. And um, well, that's what I was going to ask about, Jonathan, is the, the, the microcosm that's happened between you and Braxton here is that when, you know, you and I first met, Jonathan, you were, um, to put it mildly, you were chubby, right? I mean, I mean <laughs> you, you had a little bit of a belly. Yeah, you had a belly. A little bit? Um, yeah. I mean, when we debated there in, in Houston, you know, you even made a joke about, you know, your, you had your, your keg or something carrying it around instead of a six pack <laughs> or whatever it was. Yeah. And, and I, I was bigger than, than too, by the way, I, I was probably 50, 75 pounds heavier than I am now when we, we debated. So both of us have lost weight, but Braxton, here's the question for you. Has Jonathan become like that as he yes. has become more and more fit? Yes. I'll give you one example. And that is that about, you know, eight or 10 years ago when I first started talking with Jonathan, he was very clear that he didn't care anything about gun control. He was like, yeah, just everybody just give up your guns. Who cares? Come on. It's the 21st century. <laughs> and now he's like, oh, heck no. If I can have a nuclear weapon, I'll have it. <laughs> yeah, there, there's something. There's something. I was really that. wondering. Um, I was wondering yeah, where you're going to go with that. <laughs> I have moved over the years further to the right of the political spectrum. Uh, I'll, I'll, I'll own up to that. But I think, um, and I guess some people would say my egalitarianism is liberal or whatever, mm -hmm. but I think theologically I've moved more, uh, conservative on, on stuff. Cause I, I used to be uh, as namby pamby about uh, a lot of different views as I was, as I still am about hell at least, you know? And so I think that mm -hmm. my, my theology has tightened up over, you know, uh, over the, course of the past i wonder if there's a person i wonder if there's a personality connection there because people who are very fit and very disciplined you know if you're fit and you're disciplined i think of my different my, my my children you know i've got one child who sleeps on his laundry kind of a thing and the other one's like mr uh, get up and it's 5 a.m and run and you know everything's in order and fit very disciplined that kind of thing and so you just have the different personality types and, and I'm wondering if the personality types are drawn to a certain way of thinking about things as being, this is the way that it is, you know, um, this is, you know, that's, that has everything in its place and everything has a place and it should be in its place. And I don't know, it just seems like maybe there's some, you know, correlation between the personality of someone who tends to be fit and coordinated and organized and those kinds of things and their oh, beliefs. Trinity Radio longtime listeners have complained that I've actually, believe it or not, become nicer since I lost weight and stuff. But yeah, like, and I and when I was at my heaviest, I became much crankier. Yeah, <laughs> but I think when we talk about like what's going on with this kind of thing, and I know that this is probably a small drip in the bucket in Australia's problems. I don't live there; I don't know what's going on. But it did catch my attention because it kind of ties into things about. What we talked about at the top, men staying disciplined in their marriages, staying focused and intent in their children's lives, you know, whether, not and that article, by the way, the, the first one we talked about didn't talk about just keeping them active in church. It talked about being present, uh, you know, for their ball games, being present for their interests and all this kind of stuff, just active fatherhood in their lives. And then, of course, the these these people with. I mean, faith is kind of not quite as bad as the UK, but in Australia, you know, they're more progressive. It's kind of falling out of fashion. 
there as well. But you have people, you have young Generation Z people saying, getting fit and saying, we want traditional, in this case, Catholicism was, was, was his belief, but we want traditional stuff. We don't want this progressive stuff. And, and I think there is something too. And somebody, they were talking about masculinity versus toxic masculinity and all of that kind of stuff. But I do think there is something to just basic masculinity of a man honoring his commitment to his wife, being dedicated to the upbringing of his own children, uh, being disciplined in his eating, being disciplined in his, you know, physical health and fitness and all that kind of stuff. Yes. And I think if you, all of it, that could present a yes. way attra- more attractive counterculture than another apologetics book or Xbox. Yeah, yeah. Well, well, here's the thing. If you want a good case for that, check out uh, The End of Gender by Deborah So, who is an atheist, liberal leftist feminist who uh, the second half of that book particularly toward the very end, uh, she'll, you'll get the case for, no, actually, biologically speaking, generally speaking, here's where our bodies lead us to in terms of desire, in terms of family unit, all those kind of things. And it's a denial of biology. I, I wanted to see something here. I wanted to put this up. This would be the last thing. Um, it is, this is, has to do with our egalitarian thing. Honestly, Atheist, who's a friend of the channel, it is wild to me that people of conscience can be blatantly cultural, uh, can read blatant cultural misogyny from an ancient time and think, yeah, that seems right to me, instead of, oh, this passage must not be God-breathed. Well, uh, I want to say about this, I need to know what passage you're talking about. Why should I think, like, look, I'm not going to pretend like I'm not aware of all the places people point and say, well, that's misogynistic, that's misogynistic. But I do kind of need to know exactly what you're talking about here, because I don't think that yeah. it's misogyny to say that uh, in the structure of the local church, which honestly, atheist, you don't even have any stock in. You're not a Christian. That one of the situations is we don't a woman is not to hold the position of elder. Now, I'm ready to be convinced that that's not true, that the women can hold that position. But the complementarians. Uh, as opposed to the egalitarians, are so called because they say these two uh, these two sexes, men and women, are equal in value before God. They're intrinsically equally valuable or sacred, set apart to be valuable uh, equally, but they have different roles. Now, obviously, men and women have different biological roles in terms of their nature. Um, until 15 minutes ago, we all understood that men and women were generally different. And because not putting that on you, honestly, atheist, but until 15 minutes ago, like the culture has always understood there's men and there's women and uh, men are a certain way. Women are a different way. And that's just how it is. And men are better at certain things. Women are better at certain things. And uh, not not uh, we're talking about generalities here. Right. Like there's there's obviously individual outliers. Right. All I heard is all I heard is Braxton say that men can do things better than women. That's all I heard. Right. Right. But the bottom line is, like, what's misogynistic about that? Yeah, I, I don't. Think I, I so. think our culture has said, ha, has set up things like that to say, oh, "What? That is so horrific! How can thinking people?" Yeah. But understand that a hundred years ago, the notion of what we're seeing now with uh, sexual ethics and what we're seeing with abortion, the butchery of uh, unborn children, would have been thought to be absurdly immoral, pretty much, you know. Throughout Except human for history. the mullet <laughs> for tossing babies into... Yeah, I mean, well, yeah, you said they're outliers. Yeah, I mean, yeah, they're always outliers. But I just want to say, as an egalitarian, one of the things that I find embarrassing 
is uh, I talk about a lot of things Nick and I do, what egalitarians do to embarrass us. Like egalitarians, uh, there, there's some stupid ones that will sit there and look at a soft complementarian or even a complementarian, just a regular one, and say, oh, you're a sexist. You're so sexist. Yeah, okay. You're trying well, to oppress. I, when that's I, great. When, when egalitarians Bye. make those arguments, <laughs> I want to crawl under a rock and say, I am not with those people yeah. uh, because it's just stupid. Because it it, it is just a different understanding of biblical text but even even egalitarians recognize that there's a fundamental difference between men and women right and that and that there's complementarian roles within marriages and, and things like that because you have like the aog is overwhelmingly egalitarian but they will still have complementarian views in terms of the the house which you know some other egalitarians may have a different take on it than that but i mean like you have to really know who you're talking to and what they believe in order to make mm-hmm. So here's the bottom line. So when someone says, well, I don't understand all this misogyny, what I want to say is, well, okay, look, here's my situation. Here's my epistemic system. I've got, I believe that God exists based on what I think are powerful arguments. I, be, uh, I believe that uh, Christianity is true because I believe in the case for the resurrection. And then I can build out subsidiary cases that I think make sense of why we can trust the New Testament documents. And I'm just going on evidence here. I'm not telling you like what I like all the in between that I actually believe. I'm just giving you the evidential stuff. And just with the evidential stuff, I think I can know there's a God. Christianity is true, and the New Testament is generally reliable. Okay, so I see that. So I see that, and I'm coming through. And I'm coming to a passage that, yeah, okay, this thing about women. If I'm wrong, if if I'm right in my understanding of that, and Pritchett's wrong, which Pritchett may well be right because usually Pritchett's right. If I'm right, though. What does that mean? Does it mean sexism? No, I mean, yeah, some people think that, but some people think all kinds of things. You're right. What it means is, oh, this is one of the things that women aren't supposed to do. There are things that men aren't supposed to do. That's just the way it is. What's the big deal? You know? Yeah. Are we done? Both sides can both sides can uh, demonize the other side pretty easily, and that's that's the embarrassing part of it is that, and that's and that's the whole point I was getting to. You can you can have in Christian maturity disagreements among each other without Absolutely. making embarrassing uh, black and white kind of, and that's kind of what I felt like was happening on the floor of the SBC. It was just this black and white, no nuance kind of. Uh, either we believe what God says about women, or we don't you know, and that kind of a thing. And it's not that cut and dry and it's not that simple. And it was being made to feel that way. And that, and that's, I, that, that's disheartening. And, and that's the disheartening, even for somebody who may agree with the more kind of a soft complementarian side of things. I just didn't like the way the other, the other side was being portrayed um, because I could see myself very easily being on that side, you know, and being portrayed that way. And so uh, you, you want to treat people the way you want to be treated. And you, that means representing them in a, the nuanced, you know, the straw, straw man versus steel man, kind of an argument versus, you know, uh, painted in the, the worst light possible. And sometimes, you know, the, the, on the floor of a convention, you throw everybody into the same quote unquote liberal bag as being just the forest, you know, weird thing. I, I was talking to, uh, a friend of mine at work yesterday, and he was saying it's kind of like you know a Baptist or this a ten lane highway, and you've got people in lanes one and two who represent the ultra fundamentalist conservative side, if you will, and then lanes eight and nine representing the most liberal progressive side, if you will, 
And he said, most Baptists uh, uh, exist between lanes, uh, what is it, three and seven, um, or three and eight, you know, somewhere in there. Um, that's where most of us are. But he said the squeaky wheels are the guys in, in lanes one and two and in eight and or nine and 10 way over here. And, and he said there, and the people of us that are kind of in the middle somewhere, somewhere in those lanes, um, you know, end up being driven by the people who are in those far lanes on the, on the right or the left, because they're the loudest voices oftentimes. And the mistake I think that happens oftentimes is that, you know, a person in lane one starts calling out a person who's in lane three as if they're really in lane 10 and treating them like they're in lane 10 when they're really in lane three on that, you know, that scale, so to speak. And therefore I can't really get along with them. I've got to make my, my convention has to look like lane one and only lane one by golly. Otherwise we're not really a Christian organization. And, and that that's when it, it can, you just, again, you remove all nuance, you remove all discussion, you remove, um, Christian maturity and disagreement over issues um, that I, I think we have to be willing to do in, in order for a denomination to survive uh, through our cultural wars and the bigger issues that we're going to be fighting along the way. I think we have to be willing to to learn to to get along and represent each other well. Yeah, and I don't see that, that happening. Yeah, that last point is extremely important because it goes back to what I was saying earlier. There are the, the a convention like. And, you know, Texas Baptists, y'all, y'all are always the cowboy rebels anyway. Y'all kind of march to your own tune. You're not going to be dictated from top-down structures or anything. But Darn right. But um, but just the SBC in general, I mean, the cooperative efforts of, of a denomination like the Southern Baptist Convention gets diminished when churches leave because the, the, the pot of money that the SBC collects to go towards various endeavors, everything from – uh, rescue operations all the way down to foreign missions and everything else that pie shrinks when people leave and, and are divided and we've got like s- more serious issues than that going on in the church and when i see a denomination like the sbc um at, doing a little bit of, of cleanup job to make sure that doctrinal fidelity to some standard is okay i, I don't really necessarily have a problem with that because like i said if Galitarians want to go elsewhere. Other donors should be happy to have them. But like you said, there, there are bigger issues, and it's going to take all of the church resources they can muster uh, to put up a front against it. So um, I, I think they need to pick their battles more wisely. Um, but I don't want to tell the denomination how, how to handle things. But I think I think at some point, if, if you settle one issue, somebody's going to find something else to fight about. And are those things that are going to come up every year at the convention that people want to fight about are they really that important when you're facing a culture that is trying to destroy you that's that's the real what question. you th- you just kind of what's next i mean are is there is there going to be theology police that come out and start looking at every sbc website to find out if their children's pastor is called a children's pastor instead of a children's worker or children's minister and, um, you know, if they're female, then if you don't change that, then we're going to, we're going to vote to have you removed next year on the floor of the convention. I mean, when, when, do, when does that kind of thing stop? And it just, it seems to me to be just a, like you said earlier, Jonathan, it seems to be a point that the, 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 the deceiver can use to divide us and, and try to cause a lot of denominational strife and, and, you know, in, inward focusness instead of on the, the focus on the great commission and what we should be doing as a, a denomination we're, we're, we're fighting over in some, in some ways semantics with regard to what 
you know, what labels are used to define the the role of, you know, with children's pastor, youth pastors and those kinds of things as well and how that works. And sometimes it, you know, it, it's disheartening to see the, the focus there. I, I, I would like to close. Yes, because this is becoming a Leighton Flowers length. <laughs> I would like to close with show and tell time real quick. I have a show and tell item. So I have debate notebooks. Whenever I have a debate, I build a new notebook. Um, and, uh, and then I use that. And from years ago, I, I was looking at my Calvinism debate notebook, Jonathan, and I have here right in front of me on this Leighton Flowers cast that's not about Calvinism. I have in Spanish a flyer for my debate with Joe Myra, my second favorite debate of all time. And uh, here is that flyer. Now, there's a funny story with this. You really can't see it that well. But there's me on the top in the green, and then there's uh, Joe underneath that. And it says, um, and I'm sorry, my Spanish-speaking friends, Gran Conferencia, Apologetica con el Dr. Braxton Hunter. And it says somewhere on here about Calvinism. El Calvinismo y la Biblia. Okay, is Calvinism, Calvinism in the Bible? So this is a debate. Now, what's funny about this is that when this church put this debate together, they put up billboards around Miami and because it was in Miami. And uh, it had it had it had this picture. Now, notice I'm bald in this picture, as I always am. Now, you can't really see it very well, but Joe down here on the bottom looks somewhat like me in a picture like this on a billboard, except he has hair. And Calvinism, when written in Spanish, sounds very similar to the word for baldism. <laughs> and so a number of men called the conference and said, I have to go to this conference about hair growth and baldness <laughs> because I saw the picture of the man on the on the billboard before and after. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Oh, man. Yeah, I just thought I'd close that. Listen, folks, we've really enjoyed this. You should check out Soteriology 101 on YouTube and on wherever you get podcasts and all the rest. And on Facebook, Leighton Flowers is someone who I've spent uh, a lot of time in person with. And I can tell you something. He's always helped me. He's always been um, a source of brotherly love to me. I feel a great camaraderie. And I believe that he's a good man who does anything that he does. He does it because that's what he thinks God wants him to do. And I, I encourage you to follow him, check out what he has to say, listen to it. And with that... We'll see you next time. Jonathan, thank you for this spectacular show. And we'll see you next time hey, on Trinity. Great, guys. Radio.